Well, I don't know about you, but I mean, next week is Christmas already, and uh, time is flying by, and so I don't know if you've even finished your Christmas shopping, and there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I'm just playing catch-up right now myself, and so trying to get into the Christmas spirit, so to speak, but it's been hard. But if you've been following the Christmas calendar or the, uh, the, uh, the calendar of the year, you know that many people uh, of some faith are celebrating or observing what we call Advent, Advent. Advent uh, comes from the Latin word meaning the coming. And it's a period where churches remember the coming uh, of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so three or four weeks, four weeks right after Thanksgiving, some people uh, remember Advent every week to kind of keep them in the spirit of coming of Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ and and all that good stuff. And so for centuries, Advent has been a time of, of spiritual reflection as well as of cheer and of anticipation. And so for Advent, for us today, we who celebrate it today, it, it's kind of fun because we know what's coming. It's Christmas Day, right? We know what time it will be. We, we expect it to be good. Uh, we expect it to be fun, maybe, at least enjoyable. Advent, which is a period of waiting, but it's, waiting is easy for us because it's finite. We know when it's going to end, December 25th. But waiting in life is not always so neat or orderly, is it? Particularly when you are waiting for things in life without knowing if it will ever come. Whether it's for a spouse, whether it's for children, whether it's for a reconciliation in a relationship, whether it's for a vocation, whether it's for a plan that you have in your life, or whether it's even just for good health. Or worse, what, what if you have bad news? Then you're going through something hard and terrible, and you're just, now you're just waiting it for it to end. And the only question you have then is, how long? How long do I have to wait? And so at this point now, it's not just waiting for something just good. At this point, it's more. Your waiting is now a longing. It becomes a longing, and it becomes a yearning. And so Advent, this period of waiting in the Bible, uh, for the people in the Bible, was more than just waiting for Christmas Day, waiting for presents, right? Waiting for the meal and the family get-together. For Advent, for people in the Bible, there's this longing, there's this desperate yearning, there's this anticipation for some good news, oftentimes in the midst of your bad news. Let me ask you a question today. What is your good news today? What would be good news for you right now today? What are you waiting for right now? What are you longing for? What are you yearning for right now in your life? And one of the things that the people of the Bible often seem to be waiting for is freedom. Freedom. And that's what I want to talk about. What it means to long for freedom. The last time I think I experienced what I call freedom was when I went to college my first year. Living under your parents' rule, doing what your parents said, having to go where your parents went, and finally, you move away for college, and for the first time, no more parents. No one telling you what to do, no one telling you to go to church, no one telling you to, like, you know, get up in the morning or go study or go clean your room. I felt freedom, or at least I thought it was freedom. But when you read the Old Testament and you read about the history of the nation of Israel, freedom was always an issue. Freedom was something that was always precarious for the Israelites. They repeatedly needed to be delivered from their enemies. 
When you read the Old Testament, you see how oftentimes God's people would lose their physical freedom time and time again as various nations would come in and take over them. You read 2 Kings and you read about how they were captive under the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then later on in 587 B.C., they were again captives under the Babylonians. And during these times, there was this longing and, and yearning for freedom. So much so, people like Isaiah would prophesy this. In chapter 61, he would say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. They were waiting for freedom, longing for freedom over and over again in their history. And so longing and waiting for freedom marked the people of God. It was part of who they were from the very beginning. Longing for something in this world was part of their identity, the way they lived as sojourners in this land. But nowhere do you see this yearning for freedom, nowhere do you see it more than Exodus chapter 2. Listen to what he says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God, hearing their groaning, heard them. They groaned. Do you remember Exodus? Another period of of blatant slavery under the Egyptians. And it says there they groaned because of their slavery. That groaning is what we call in English an onomatopoeia. It, it means what it sounds like. It's this, like, oh, you know, I can't wait. I wish this would end. They were under slavery, and God heard their cry. And he sends Moses, right? He delivers him, takes him through the desert for 40 years. And then Joshua, he sends Joshua. And then Joshua leads the people into the promised land, into Canaan. And now they are free. Right? At least that's how the story goes. Now you might ask, well, that's all good for Israel. They got freedom in the land of Canaan. They got free out of Egypt. But what does that have to do with us today? And the question I want to ask you today is this. Do you long for freedom? And you're thinking, well, what do you, what do you mean, Pastor Francis? What do you mean, do I long for freedom? We live in the land of the free and the brave. We're not in captivity under any nation. You might feel or have felt like you were slaves when you were living with your parents. But we don't. We don't live in slavery like the Israelites did in Egypt. We're not, we're not slaves anymore, are we? We're not in captivity like they used to be. Don't you have to experience some kind of slave condition in order to really want freedom? And most of us, we can't relate with that. Maybe the forefathers of our nation could relate with this, but, but many of us, not us, not today. And that may be true on one level. But on another level, maybe we can relate. Because the freedom in the Bible is never just physical freedom. It's also spiritual. You may not relate with the, the slavery of Israel, but there's a kind of slavery that Paul says that we can all relate with, a kind of freedom that we all need, a kind of freedom that really we all really long for. And you look at our passage today, you look at Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 6, listen to what Paul says in verse 16 again. He says this, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, 
you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Did you hear what Paul's saying? If you present yourself to anyone as a slave, and you've got to ask the question now, why would anyone willingly, deliberately present themselves to anyone as a slave? Does that make sense? And the reason why you think like this is because when you think about slavery, you're thinking something like Israel under Egypt, or you're thinking someone like, something like what our country went through or experienced a long time ago, that, that it was racial and it was forced and it was meant to be permanent. It was really evil. But nobody willingly presented themselves, gave themselves to be a slave to anyone. So what does Paul mean? And this is what you have to understand about Paul's understanding of his particular slavery. In the first century, it was the common practice that if you had a lot of debt, and you owed a lot of debt to someone, in exchange for working off that debt, you would offer yourself to that person in servitude. You would be somewhat like an indentured servant. You would say, hey, I will be your slave as long as it takes for you to remove the debt I owe you. I will put myself under your control. That's what happens. But once you became a slave or a servant, now that person is your master and has complete control of your life, at least until your debt is paid. This is what Paul is thinking about. Unlike our understanding of slavery, Paul's understanding in the first century was a voluntary enslavement. You willingly present yourself as a slave to someone else. You get something back, the debt removed. But in return, you are no longer free, but now have a master who has control over your life until the debt that is paid. Does that sound familiar? You willingly give yourself to something or someone thinking it will do something for you. But that thing or that someone is now your master. And here's what Paul is making a point. He's making a spiritual insight of the human heart. You know the first commandment is? Listen to this. The first commandment of the Bible. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember that? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You've got two possibilities according to that commandment. Either the God of the Bible is your God or some other God. But there is no middle ground. There is no third choice. He's saying this. I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. You either have me as God or you have some other God. There is no third choice. That's what he's saying, that commandment. And Paul says in our passage the same thing. He's using that idea and he's saying, you're either slaves of one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or you'll be a slave to obedience which leads to righteousness. You see what Paul's saying? You're either a slave to someone in sin or you'll be a slave to someone in obedience to righteousness. Paul is saying this. There are only two kinds of people that live in this world. Those who are living for God and obeying him or those who are spiritually enslaved to someone or something else. That's what he's saying. Now you're asking me and you're thinking, well, how's that possible? How's that possible? And the answer is very simple. It's more than you think. Everybody, 
irrespective of what you think about God or religion or, or church or whatever, everybody lives for something. You and I, we live for something or someone. We, we need to because that something or someone is the thing that gives my life meaning, makes me feel valuable, helps me to provide significance and security. We all live and want to live for something or someone that makes our life worth living. For some of you, it's your career. It's your job. For others of you, it's your family, maybe your children. And for some of us, it's power or influence or, or, or approval, money, romance, companionship. Something or someone that you willingly give your life to because you think it will give you what you need, whether it's meaning or purpose or significance or security, something you base your life on, but in exchange Paul is saying, that's what will control you. If you offer yourself to it, you will obey it. That's what will master you. You think you control it, but you won't control it. It will control you because you've offered yourself to it, much like a slave willingly offers himself to a master. Whatever that is in your life, that's your God. You either worship the God of the Bible or you'll worship something else. There is no in-between. John Calvin says in his institutes, he says this, man is an idolarum fabricum, in Latin, meaning this, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. If you don't worship the God of the Bible, you will worship someone or something else. If you don't live for God, you will live for someone or something else. Something or someone you have willingly given your life to. Something or someone you must obey. And you are slaves for the one whom you obey. That's what Paul said. Well, how does that work? How am I a slave? How am I a slave to money? How am I a slave to, to you know, approval? How does that work? Verse 12, we didn't read it, but this is what it says in the same passage. Paul says this. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Okay? This is, how, this is how these other gods enslave us. Paul says, don't let sin reign in your body so that you obey its lust. What's lust? Now, when I say lust, most of you are thinking sexual lust. Okay? But that's not what he's talking about. The word lust here in Greek comes from this word thumia, which means desire. And the word here for lust is epithumia, which means over-desire, inordinate amount of desire. So what Paul says there in verse 12, in the same passage, he says, don't let sin reign in your body so that you obey its over-desires. So this is what he's saying. This is how things control us. When Paul says obey his lust, he's not talking about a desire for bad things. He's talking about an over-desire, an inordinate amount of desire for good things. And basically what Paul is saying is that when we lust, when we over-desire, we make good things into ultimate things. And ultimate things are those things in your life that you say, this is life to me. This is what I need to have. 
This gives me what I need. You've made a good thing into an ultimate thing. Think about this. If you place that much importance, if you place that much of your significance, your security, your identity, your life on something or someone else, you've got to have it, don't you? You've got to have it. You've got to have them. And that's how you lose control. It controls you. That's how you become enslaved. In your desires, you make good things into God things. How do I know? How do I know if I'm doing this? I don't know if I've made good things into ultimate things. How do I know if I'm, I'm, I'm really not obedient to this God, but I'm, I'm enslaved to something else? How do I know, right? And this is how you know. I'll give you three, three things, three things to think about. Anger. Think about your anger. If something or someone gets in the way of you getting a good thing, sure, you might get a little upset, maybe a little bit frustrated, even a little angry. But if that something gets in the way of what you've made an ultimate thing, something you based your life on, you don't just get angry. You go crazy. You blow up. You do or say things that you know later you regret because you are what? Out of control. Something else had enslaved you. You didn't control it. It controls you. That's how you know. Here's another test. Worry. Worry and fear. If something you have in your life that is good is threatened, of course you get worried. But if something ultimate in your life, you feel is ultimate in your life, is threatened, now you're paralyzed with fear. You fall apart. You can't even think straight. You're so afraid. You know you're driven by it, but it's out of control. You don't control it. It controls you. You don't master that. It masters you. See that? Here's the last one. Think about this one. Sadness. You lose something good, something, something even important and, and, and dear to you. And of course, you become sad. You, you get really sad and maybe even depressed. And it, it could take days. It could take weeks, even months to get over. But if you feel like you lost something that's ultimate to you, something you based your life on, you're not just sad. You want to jump off a cliff. You feel that the ultimate in your life is now gone, and now because it's gone, your reason to live is gone. You had an over-desire for something or someone, something or someone controls you. You didn't control that. It controls you. It's your master. And it's so unforgiving. These are tests. These are things that you know that you're mastered by something. This is how we all think. Well, for example, if I look like this, if I weigh this much, I'll be good. You desire that. But you over-desire that, it turns into an eating disorder. You give yourself to your work, your job. If I do this much, if I get up on the ladder this much, if I make this much money, I'm good. That's a good desire. But you over-desire, you become a workaholic. It controls you. It's never enough. You're in a relationship 
Everybody says it's no good. Even you know, deep down, it's no good. But you can't give it up. You know why? Because you've made an idol out of human affection, out of romance, out of companionship. It's got you. You don't got it. It controls you. You see it? That's what Paul's saying in our passage. You're under one obedience which leads to righteousness, or you're under the other which leads to death. There is no in-between. There is no third choice. And just because you don't believe or worship or follow the Christian God doesn't mean you're spiritually neutral or spiritually free. It just means you've got another spiritual master. And we all do. We all struggle with this. You might think you're free, but not really. And Paul will say, if that's what you think, then you're being really naive about how the human heart works. And until you see this, until you acknowledge this, you will never make the change in your life that you need to make. It's hard. I know it's hard. You know why it's hard? Here's why. Was there a Butterfield in her, one of her books? Describes her sin this way. She says, quote, One very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me. Plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. End quote. It's unforgiving, all these other things. It's never enough. No matter, no matter how much you do, you're always going to be wondering if it'll be enough. You, you're not so sure, so you need to work harder, or, or you end up in despair. But most of all, it's just tiring. And that's why you get tired. That's why many of us are drained. And if you're in that position, you're longing, you are groaning for freedom, for spiritual freedom. Now you might say, Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe that's the case. But is being enslaved to God better than being enslaved to something or someone else? I mean, is it better to be with God than someone else? I mean, what, what's the benefit of that? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here is offering rest. The real God here is offering you a break, not just from weekly work, but a break from that, am I productive enough? Am I good enough? Am I lovable enough? Am I safe enough? Am I rich enough? Am I strong enough? Did I do enough kind of thinking that you always seem to live under? Jesus comes to give you rest from that. He comes to give you freedom. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he will give you rest. You see, this is the Jesus that the people in the Bible long for. He's the one that Isaiah talked about. He's the one that will bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound. Not physical freedom, not just physical freedom, but spiritual as well. He came to save sinners. He was the one that worked endlessly and tirelessly to heal, to love, and to save the sick. He came to give rest to the weary and the restless, to the overburdened, to the overly angry, to the overly anxious and fearful, to the overwhelmingly sad. He came to give freedom. How? 
by lifting our significance, our meaning, our security, our identity away from what we do and what we can do, what we want to do, to what he's done for us, to what he's done, which can never be undone, to what he has, which can never be taken away. Here is a God, a true God, to whom you can offer yourself freely, wholeheartedly, in love and obedience. You can take his yoke, as Jesus says, not because you owe him a debt and you're trying to pay it off, but because he's forgiven your debt. And he paid for it himself by giving himself on a cross. And that's why Paul says in our passage, thanks be to God that you were who once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, having been set free. You have become slaves of righteousness. This is a God you can trust to be your ultimate security, to give you ultimate significance and purpose, to be your ultimate source of life. And if you're looking for a kind of God in your life that gives you spiritual freedom, then this is the kind of God that you and I should be longing for, not any other.